Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, he's the only kid ever to get into trouble before he was born. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. I'm going to say Citizen Ruth. Mm, no, I mean that would be dark for Citizen yeah. Ruth. For those of you who don't know, that's a uh, kind of comedy about abortion. Ed has gone straight in there <laughs> with the spikiest Directed by multiple... Multiple Oscar winner Alexander Payne. I thought you were going to say multiple abortionist, but no, <laughs> he, he kind of does very much sit on the fence uh, in that film. Uh, yeah, it's a good film anyway, but no, that was Back to the Future. <gasps> it was the original tagline for Back to the Future. That's, that tagline's pretty terrible. It is pretty terrible. Uh, it's, yeah, I, I can only assume that that was pitched by the guy that said, the, the executive that said that the DeLorean should be replaced with the fridge mm. and that they should call it the man from Pluto instead of back to the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a more accurate tagline would be he's the only kid to travel back in time and nearly bang his mum. That I think that was for the re-release. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be, uh, well, in the days of R rated cuts of things, it's about time. Mm. It's about time. We uh, get a back to the future where Marty McFly flies a little too close to the sun as it were. Yeah. Where's our Marty V Biff? <laughs> I like the reference. I like it. Um, okay, uh, we've got some news. It's uh, You guys are probably listening to this having just seen Game of Thrones because it's about to air uh, as we're recording uh, very shortly. Are you excited for season six, Ed? I am excited and trepidatious at the same time. Excited because it's a show that I really like and I'm very excited to finally be on the same page as everyone because up until now I was one of those arseholes who'd read the books. So now we're all going into uncharted territory together and it's very exciting. There's a sense of communion and no longer adver- uh, animosity between the two sides. And it's all very lovely. It's very much a reunited Berlin vibe going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, the last season was the worst season uh, and it had a lot of flaws. It was still a good show, but it still had flaws. And I'm wondering if they can kind of course correct now that they don't have a blueprint to work from. Mm, yeah. And if you're going to try and course correct anything, get Ian McShane on board. Mm, um, yeah. That could be the answer. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm very much like you in the sense that I'm in the kind of East Berlin, kind of living in my communist kind of block, not knowing what's going on. I haven't read the books whilst you were on the other side with your Western decadence. Uh, <laughs> I haven't read them all and having all the info. I didn't know anything. And I've watched all the, all of it twice now. And I thought seasons one to four were pretty, pretty spot on. But having watched five again last week with my wife, who hasn't seen any of it, and I've had to watch her go through the emotional ringer that uh, Game of Thrones is. Five is really hard work. There's a, there's the two storylines in particular, which are a real drag. The the Jamie storyline and the Arya storyline, uh, which there's some story there, I guess, but they string it out for several episodes longer than is necessary. Yeah, the Arya storyline in the the House of Black and White is very much the sort of thing that I think is maybe three or four chapters in the books. It's not a big deal. And then in the TV show, they just have to keep going back to it because the nature of the show is they kind of have to give everyone their time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that and the Dawn thing was just dreadful. Yeah. It was so mismanaged and you, the the big change they made of having Jamie be the one who goes there kind of made sense in that 
they needed to give him something to do. But as was pointed out in the Red Letter Media video about Star Trek Insurrection, when you write something just so that you have you are giving a character something to do, it's not exactly the best motivation for doing anything. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it kind of, yeah, it's not the best thing to do to mess with stakes and things like that. I mean, Jamie going to get his daughter is probably a good idea, but the way it's executed and what's a, it's just it's so limp like the whole thing considering what happens at the end of it yeah i, did, I just didn't go along with it at all and the, the kind of much vaunted they called sand snakes yep are just shit yeah in the book they're much more kind of badass and impressive but in the tv show like they were involved in one poorly shot fight scene got put in prison and then got the tits out yeah, so it wasn't quite the uh, empowering female characters that they are presented as in the books. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't impressed by that. Um, also, for those keeping score in our East-West Berlin metaphor, I think Ian McShane is the David Hasselhoff. <laughs> right, okay. So he comes along to bring us all together. And take the credit. Yeah. I can't wait for the series, but yeah, like, I think it's uh, interesting to see where it goes, but also in terms of the future of the show, this week it was uh, definitely renewed uh, for a season seven, which is interesting because there's a kind of ongoing conflict, isn't there, between HBO and the two showrunners. The showrunners actually want to do more with less episodes, and HBO actually want to do more with more. <laughs> they would like 13, 14 episode seasons to kind of bring as much money about out of it as they can, whereas the showrunners are saying, look, I think we need to do 10-episode uh, seasons and in the last two seasons we can break into maybe a five and a six, um, which is a very unusual position to be in, that the showrunners hold that power over the network. Yeah, I think it, it helps that hate the Game of Thrones is probably the biggest hit in the network's history. Mm -hmm. Certainly in terms of kind of international sales, it's a global phenomenon. It's something that is has you know kind of created a huge amount of buzz for the network at a time when it's getting harder and harder to convince people to pay for things uh, which is a very dangerous thing for a company whose entire model is based on you have people have to pay a lot of money to access the thing and even though they've introduced like hbo go and hbo now that allow people to do it for cheaper they still need people to pay to be able to afford these things so they, you can clearly see why they would want to try and milk this thing for as much as possible. But I think the reaction to the fifth season and also just the strain of producing a show that's shot on like five continents or whatever it is, is shot all over the world with casts of hundreds, is probably wearing on them a little bit. And they're looking towards, you know, the end game and trying to end things on terms that they're happy with and the obvious tension that arises between that. It kind of reminds me in some ways of the relationship between the showrunners on Lost and ABC, where at a certain point the uh, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse said that they wanted to end the show. They needed fewer episodes than what they would normally get because they felt they could do it in that time and it would be better for the show overall than to drag it out for you know, as long and to a point where people got sick of it, and in the end, people kind of did get sick of it anyway. But the uh, the attitude they had was right, and I feel like D and D, as they are affectionately known by the fan community, are probably uh, have a, the right idea in wanting to do fewer episodes to try and really bring the series in in a in a good way. 
Mm. I suppose the actors want to do it because statistically their odds of surviving increase the less episodes there are. Yeah, yeah, it, or, you know, the, the the few that are still there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we'll be in it by at this rate, given the uh, <laughs> the fact they're burning it through. But, I mean, you know, it's an expensive show. They want to keep the wage bill down. May as well mm. uh, have a cull of the cast every now and then. A bit of news that caught my eye, which is, I don't know, let's say it's, it comes from the realms of the daft. A small group of uh, very angry nerds in America have started an active campaign to have what's known as the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Uh, for those who don't know, all the books that were written before uh, that kind of take place in between all the films, the prequels in the original trilogy, and have now, since Disney taken over, been chucked out and termed legends and ignored and ignored because a lot of it's pretty poor. And yeah, there's a group of nerds in America who want to uh, integrate it back into the Star Wars timeline to the degree that they have taken out a very large billboard in America at the cost of several thousand dollars to ask for it back. I mean, it's never going to be... They're never going to get their demands met, but it's uh, probably one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the greatest example of kind of nerd entitlement I've ever seen. Hmm. Because, you know, Disney owns Star Wars, now they can do what they want with it. They don't want to be hamstrung by all of this stuff that was... Uh, not really, that was only canon in the sense that there was no new films to contradict it all. Mm. But even then, like if you read some of the uh, the EU stuff that was produced before the, sequ- the, the prequels came out, they had a very clear idea of this was what the Clone Wars was, this is how Darth Vader lost his hand, and that stuff ended up being rendered uh, non-canonical by the prequels because they came out and George Lucas said, oh no, this is what happened. So really, this is just a bigger version of something that has already happened. Mm. And so, um, in anyone who listened to our Star Wars discussion, things like Bib Fortuna's spider brains exists in this yeah. uh, expanded universe. That's not something you want on your record. Yeah, there's there's lots of terrible stuff in the, the EU. There's some stuff that is interesting, and I think it's fun on one level seeing all of these kind of very talented sci-fi writers trying to make sense of things in the films that don't make sense mm-hmm. such as the Millennium Falcon making the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs which as everyone knows parsec is a level of uh, a, a measurement of distance and not time mm-hmm. and so they have to explain that oh what that means is that Han and Chewie had to fly it through a a cluster of black holes known as the Moor and things like that. And it's like, okay, that's that at least kind of would explain why doing it in less distance is more impressive because doing it means that you very nearly died terribly. But Mm. like the stories themselves are hamstrung by the fact that you have to try and make all this stuff connect from the films. And it's not really that great for uh, writers. And when they tried to kind of do big interconnecting storylines that, unfolded over literally hundreds of books that it very quickly became kind of boring and tedious so there's a lot of crap that just isn't canonical anymore but it still exists so if people want to read it it's still out there and it's still they're reprint reprinting it they're not mm. they're, they're not going to take every copy and fahrenheit 451 it do you know what i mean <laughs> although you know some of it they probably could do with that yeah yeah so it's i can see why people would be upset if they're that invested in it the idea that this stuff isn't canon anymore and that therefore it's not official, but it's like you say, it, it's not being burnt. It still exists. Mm. If you so like it, can... read it and, and shut up about it. Yeah. And if there is 
there's nothing in the new films that contradicts it, then I don't see why people can't just have it be their canon. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of expanded universes, this is mm. a great segue. It was announced this week uh, in very peculiar fashion. Uh, there's going to be a Hasbro expanded universe. Hasbro, for those of you who don't know, is a toy manufacturer and they're going to kind of license all their products like G.I. Joe and Mask, which is a thing I used to play with when I was a, a nipper, um, and make a kind of a, a kind of connected universe, cause, as is the one of studios these days. Um, the interesting thing about this bit of news is they've kind of assembled a team of writers, which includes some of the people you perhaps wouldn't think would be in a writer's room for a Hasbro expanded universe series of films. They include uh, Brian Vaughan, who uh, wrote the comics uh, Saga and Why the Last Man, it says here. And also Pulitzer-winning novelist Michael Chabon, who wrote things like Wonder Boys, Mystery of Pittsburgh, uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union, and I'm sure there's another one, another big one. Oh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, who we've talked about quite a lot on here. And I was pretty stunned to find out he'd been uh, uh, kind of included on that and wanted to know where the hell that came from. Well... He is someone who I think has a great affection for kind of big pulpy entertainment. I think that's obviously apparent from the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay and his his knowledge of and, and of comics lore that he then kind of transformed into his own story. And he did co-write, I believe, Spider Man Two. So, oh wow! Yeah, so he has he has turned his hand towards kind of big blockbuster entertainment in the past, but it's still. It's very strange to kind of see him being attached to something like this, you know, a big cinematic universe built around disparate toy lines. Mm. Yeah, it seems, yeah, yeah, it just seems like they're trying to kind of add a bit of weight to it. But are they going to go edgy with Hasbro? Is that necessary? Well, I think the thing that's been missing from the G.I. Joe film so far is kind of the melancholy of Wonder Boys. Mm. I think they feel like that's the, the the third kind of heat that will bring in all of the money that they've been missing out on so far. Mm. Maybe The Rock can spend an entire film of the G.I. Joe franchise wearing a pink cardigan. And then <laughs> when someone asks him about it, he says, well, there's a story about this. It's not very interesting. Um, and yeah, we'll just see where it goes from there. And we, kind of, we can tell that there is a story and it probably is interesting. It's certainly interesting to see how much all these other studios are trying to emulate what Marvel have done with their cinematic universe. And it'll be interesting to see how badly the Hasbro one fails mm. because I think, or how well it succeeds, who knows? But I think that there's other than GI Joe, I don't think there's a huge amount there to really kind of draw people in, but I think it will be the definitive test of do people like cinematic universes or do people just like Marvel films? Yeah. That's a that's a question, isn't it? Because you've got them, DC, Universal are trying to do like a new Universal horror cinematic universe. Mm. Uh, all of these sound like really terrible ideas. Yeah, I think that who who made Battleships? They should do a kind of family board game universe with like Buckaroo. Uh, well, the thing is, like all these things are stupid. Like there was announced this, this the other day. There's like an emoji movie, and there's like an Angry Birds <laughs> movie. And like the thing is, I will really want to be down on those things, but after the Lego movie, all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, because there's always the chance that it could be good. Hmm. And I don't, want to be the person, I don't want to be the naysayer who says, yeah. I don't think an emoji movie is going to be very good. Um, and then it turned out to be, yeah, a masterpiece. Because like the Angry Birds movie, I saw a trailer for that. That's got fucking Sean Penn in it. 
which I didn't see happening when I was playing Angry Birds. Yeah, I mean, it's not the worst thing he's ever done. Good point. I mean, legally, we can't say what the worst thing he ever does is because he probably sue <laughs> well, us. Yeah, it wasn't proven. Uh, yeah, but yeah, he is. He, it's it's so strange. But that that's one of those ones where you think, will it be a success? Because I know the game is still around and still popular, but this feels like something that should have happened about four years ago. Mm, yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's hard to be topical with animation unless you're South Park. Do you know? What yeah. I mean? And and the, but it's the difference between striking when the iron is hot and striking when the iron has cooled, rusted, and been put in a museum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting fact about Angry Birds that I found out a couple of weeks ago. Just I don't know how, but uh, Salman Rushdie loves Angry Birds apparently. And when I found that out, I was like, "Well, that's kind of like weird that Salman Rushdie's playing Angry Birds." Then, but then I thought, you know, when he had that fatwa on his head. <laughs> <laughs> for all those years that he was just in a bunker playing Angry Birds even though Angry Birds wasn't a thing then but that's just the image that popped into my head and I thought that if he ever gets discovered that he would just be like I just need to finish this. I need to get three stars in this level because this is, <laughs> this is killing me I, I was going to say but you know he did write that book about space invaders in the 80s but that was Kingsley Amos so I'm getting my not Kingsley Amos Martin Amos Martin Amos loved Cut the Rope that was his game of choice he he thought Angry Birds was uh, lack depth and uh, <laughs> and a profound understanding of the human condition. Yeah, but the thing with Salman Rushdie is, I find it very hard to take him seriously. You know, obviously a writer, he's great, but like as the idea of him being kind of a lofty author after he was on the one show playing ping pong against himself, <laughs> whilst having to answer questions about whether or not he likes EastEnders or Coronation Street. Oh, the one what? show, the one show is is I think in a way, like a lot of the time, I've said this many times before that that like. Every time I seem to turn on my television, I ask myself, what is this awful shit on my television? And the answer nine times out of ten is the one show, right? And it's an awful thing. But it's also probably Britain's best export because it's hard to explain to other people that you can have like a light-hearted, light entertainment show with kind of bubbly hosts and kind of a topical conversation about things that don't matter. But then they'll just wedge in like really brutal think pieces about anything. I, I saw an episode once that was, uh, it talked about something like, um, like kind of Holocaust survivors or something like that. And it ended and they went, oh yeah, uh, that's food for thought there. Looked over at their guests, who I can't remember who they were, like Helen Mirren and like Rob Brydon or something. And they were <laughs> like, and now and this is genuinely what happened. They went, and now we go to Phil Tufnell with a story about, <laughs> with, a, with a story about Europe's biggest hedge. <laughs> Europe's biggest hedge with Phil Tufnell. After a holo- hard hitting Holocaust thing, I mean that. I mean, like that's hard to like. That show shouldn't have lasted more than five episodes, but it's been running for years. It's the one show is the Great Leveler. You know, it's something where you can have people doing their kind of fizzy showbiz stories, but then you can also get um, Simon Baker turn to the sitting prime minister and just say, "How do you sleep at night?" <laughs> yeah, in, in kind yeah. of his his greatest moment as a presenter and as a human being. Yeah, yeah. Is he still alive, or has he been taken out the back and dealt with by my five? Uh, I think they replaced him with a clone. Right. Okay. Ben Fogel or someone like that. Uh, <laughs> just it's just anyone. They seem to have a rotating host. I don't really seem to. Anyway, do you miss the one show? Having lived in America now for quite some time. Not really. I I enjoy it when kind of crazy clips of it show up on topical, uh, amusing kind of comedy shows. But it was always a lot to take in in a single sitting. Because you yeah. would get those uh, those abrupt tonal shifts, which were on one level entertaining, but on another just 
made you kind of question why whether or not we should have invented television. Mm, yeah, yeah. Still asking it daily, Ed. Still asking it daily. <laughs> Moving on from the one show and Phil Tufnell with Europe's Biggest Hedge, bit of interesting directing news. Uh, but Jurassic World 2, I mean, neither, neither you or I were particularly enamoured with Jurassic World 1, mm. but Jurassic World 2 has just announced its director, and it's going to be J.A. Bayona, who regular listeners will know, uh, directed a film called The Orphanage, which was really good. And he's done a few other bits and bobs. He did the the impossible, the one about the tsunami. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also doing a, a, a Monster Calls, which is a film that I've talked about in this year's preview episode, a film that I'm super excited about this year. And uh, that kind of uh, stakes out as being that's two Jurassic World films in a row, or Jurassic Park films in a row that have had kind of interesting choices of director. And Trevorrow didn't really kind of work out. I mean, I, he seems like a nice guy and, you know, I like safety not guaranteed, but it's not as if I saw that stamp all over Jurassic World. Um, but this seems like an interesting choice, I guess. Yeah, and it, he obviously is someone who has handled big-scale disaster before, and I think because the, the an image, a, a preview image was released this week, which uh, was the Jurassic World logo, but it was Jurassic and then just the letter O and the rest of the letters in the word kind of covered by by uh by trees mm. so it's not clear what the actual name of the film is but i think the, the odds on winner is that it's going to be called jurassic outbreak jurassic trees no <laughs> it should be jurassic one. trees i wanted it to be jurassic r town it's just going to be a <laughs> a performance of the Fortin wilder classic but with half of the cast being played by dinosaurs mm. surely surely like given what number of film it is it should be called Jurassic Five, mm. and have an all hip have an all hip hop soundtrack. I mean, that is a that is a gag that people have been wanting to make for years. Yeah, they they finally given us the opportunity, and they've completely blown it. Um, mm. But like, if if it is going to be called Jurassic Outbreak, I think that the assumption is that there's even more dinosaurs out there than anyone knew about, and they're going to you know roam over some kind of metropolitan area or something. Mm, that worked um, out so well in the Lost World, didn't it? Yeah. Well, that was only one dinosaur. This time there'll be many dinosaurs. Oh, so good grief! Someone stop them. Yeah. So that that seems like if they do go for kind of a big disaster movie, but with dinosaurs, his skill set seems kind of fitted to it. You know, my my concern with it, and this is my concern about any time you hear about kind of a a small scale indie director being brought in to direct kind of a big budget film, is whether or not their distinctive kind of style will be kind of ground out by the machine and. I mean, Colin Trevorrow had only directed one film, so I think it would be hard to say that he had a distinctive style before he did Jurassic World. But I think uh, uh, Bayona has directed enough stuff so far that you could say that he is someone who has a distinctive tone and uh, ability to kind of create mood and tension. And you would hope that he would be able to bring something of that to a film of that scale and not get completely lost in all of the, the CGI and the requirements of, you know, setting up what will inevitably be Jurassic Park 6. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think all I can think of of Colin Trevorrow's style is Jake Johnson's in it. Because mm. <laughs> 100% of his films have starred Jake Johnson. Yeah, it's a good batting average. Yeah, yeah. So that must must mean he'll appear as Han Solo's nephew or something in, in <laughs> episode nine. I don't know. Lastly, this week, uh, it would it would be remiss of us uh, to not talk about Prince, who sadly died this week. Whilst we are predominantly a film podcast, uh, he was an icon, uh, and his work spanned pretty much every kind of art, and film being no exception to that. Yeah, kind of crazy news in the week. 
super unexpected and the outpouring of kind of grief and, and kind of people's memories being shared is you know something we we appear to be getting used to this year yeah i mean i was i i saw the news for first on twitter as has been the case basically with every major death this year is someone on twitter kind of is freaking out about it and then the entire world kind of joins in a few minutes later and when it said prince dies i thought oh it's an incomplete headline they must mean like charles or philip Mm. like the idea that prince had died was just seemed impossible to me because a he was like 50 he's 57 which is not like super young but it is not the age you expect someone to just kind of drop down dead mm. and especially not someone who was as prolific as him he was he put out two albums last year and as someone who was still touring you know David Bowie's death was shocking because he had, he just put out a new album and everything. But also at the same time, he was like a guy who was 69 who had been something of a recluse for a very, very long time. So it was kind of, you kind of think, okay, this logically makes sense, even though emotionally it's devastating. Whereas this, like the logic of it, you just kind of think, how can like someone who was just like performing on tour just days ago, just be dead. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, obviously the kind of results of still to come in, but yeah, there's kind of something not right there. But it's cool to see everyone sharing. It, like, it's been kind of, even though it was a shock, uh, there's been like a massive uh, people sharing stories about Prince. Obviously, he kept working and kind of kept touring, and like you say, was so prolific. So kind of everyone uh, seemed to have a story about him, and I kind of immediately about an hour after I found out, one of the first things I did was share the. The thing from uh, Chappelle's show with the true mm-hmm. ho- true Hollywood story, Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories uh, about the time they played Prince at basketball, which is one of mm-hmm. the funniest things uh, I've ever seen on that show. That's absolutely amazing. But then I felt instantly guilty about it, only to find out like about 10 minutes before I shared it, David Simon, creator of The Wire, had shared the same thing on Twitter. <laughs> so, you know, if he's done it, then that's fine. But like everyone, like there was loads of stories going around. There was a really good one that like I saw that Prince would, if if he felt that, like, the audience weren't feeling the gig, he would say he wanted all the lights turned off on stage and off stage in the audience, and he would say to the audience, you are, you guys obviously are feeling a little bit self-conscious, and then he'd just play a party banger, one of his real big hits, and mm-hmm. then halfway through, turn the lights on to see if everyone was dancing, which was, like, a really kind of weird, eccentric thing to do. Yeah, I think what was, was great about the the way people reacted to his death was it really brought out just how much of a multimedia kind of star he was mm-hmm. because it wasn't just everyone was sharing like all the great music that he made but also you know you kept people talking about the films he made the the impact he had as the the stuff like you know appearing on the Muppets SNL did a special where they just showed all of his live performances over the course of his career and also sketches about him and it it kind of really brings home just how much of kind of this ubiquitous figure he was for a really long time, even when, you know, like his, his kind of peak was really that the, from the early eighties through to the early nineties. And then his uh, kind of the quality of his work became a lot more sporadic. And I think he became less central to the pop culture conversation, but he was still kind of ever present every few years. He put out an album where he'd appear somewhere and people would get really excited about him again. Uh, so I think the the seeing all of the various things that he did over the course of his career being brought up by people really did emphasize just that, you know, how much he tried. You know, he was someone who 
didn't seem particularly constrained by the limitations of just being a musician. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of weird that both him and David Barry had died this year because there were, you can draw a line through those two people and the mm. kind of work they did and, and their kind of pursuit of never being kind of pigeonholed as one thing. I hope uh, Elvis Costello is looking after himself because mm. he yeah. seems to be the next one on that line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of like uh, not the music, in terms of like playing with their kind of sexuality and kind of, I'd just say Andre three thousand, <laughs> stay away from the uh, the electric blanket because you know it could go ill. But anyway, Prince, take it steady. It was nice to uh, share the earth with you for this short time. What we're we talking about in uh, the, what we talked about the news for fucking ages. What we're we talking about <laughs> for the latter half of this show, Ed. We are going to be following up last week's episode where we talked about heroes to talk about villains. Mm, that will come as no surprise to anyone paying attention last week or anyone uh, who read the episode title <laughs> of this week's uh, thing. Kind of everyone loves a good villain. Everyone's got their favourites and stuff. But um, there is something like a bit of a complaint that I have about villains. And it's that a villain quite often tends to just serve a story rather than being a character. And as a result, villains are frequently underwritten it will just be the man in a black hat with no real reason to be bad they'll just be bad and do bad things is this a fair criticism uh is this laziness and at what point did hollywood and films in general feel like they had to give villains a bit more to go with i think it's definitely fair in a lot of cases i think an interesting example that i thought of is in terms of contrast between these two things is between the two of the Disney versions of The Jungle Book. There's obviously the 1967 animated version and then there's the quote-unquote live-action one that's come out, you know, in the last couple of weeks, but it's really... It's mostly animation. There's, like, two real people in it and that's it. Um, In the original, the 1967 version, Shere Khan, the tiger's motivation is that he's a tiger... And that he might kill Mowgli. It's like he doesn't even meet Mowgli until he's getting ready to kill him. Mm. Um, and he is basically just presented that he is a tiger. He is probably going to kill the man cub. Whereas in this like most recent version, they give Shere Khan a backstory that would explain why he would want to kill Mowgli and why he hates humans. And you know they kind of go a bit more into his fear of fire and. Both versions are very charismatic. They're voiced very well. They are they they have a certain kind of debonair quality to them. But the version in the 2017 version is genuinely kind of compelling because he has a point of view. Mm. And you can think, okay, he wants to murder the hero of this story and he's going to hurt people in order to achieve that aim. But he has a logic and he has an internal consistency that makes sense whereas the, the the 1967 version is literally just i am a tiger therefore i will kill him even though i'm a talking tiger and i have for all intents and purposes the kind of the sentience of a human being mm, mm, absolutely i think it's interesting that now um i think people expect a bit more in terms of dimensions from their villain Mm-hmm. But not too much, because they still need to go... They don't want to end up liking them, which is the problem with uh, a lot of films now, which kind of uh, confuses mainstream audiences, but that's actually just a bit more interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it, it can enliven a film to have a villain that is really kind of charismatic and fun. Uh, I think kind of the the greatest version of this, and, and someone else we lost in 2016, would be Alan Rickman 
as Hans Gruber in Die Hard, mm-hmm. where he plays a villain who is actually, in some respects, a lot more charismatic than Bruce Willis mm. because he has a certain charm to him and he is this kind of very, uh, you know, he wears expensive suits. He's kind of very charming and he, he has a kind of a, a charisma to him that is undeniable. But the film does also say, oh yeah, but he will also murder innocent people. So there is kind of a nice clear dividing line where you say you may find this guy really interesting and you may, you know, genuinely kind of think that he has, you you may on some level think, eh, I wouldn't mind too much if he got away with it. He seems Mm. pretty nice. But they have enough sense to say, yeah, we need to show him just like shooting a man in the head. Mm. And it's it's interesting going back to what we were talking about at the top of the show uh, with Game of Thrones that um, there's a film, uh, sorry, a TV show in which uh, everyone's awful <laughs> to a degree. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that uh, they're kind of so well put together as characters rather than just kind of ciphers for evil or just bad deeds that you end up going either way on them. I, you know, as like I said, I kind of watched this through with my wife and she'd never seen it before. Um, not, not a framework, didn't know anything about the books or anything. And uh, she openly said at the end of the first season uh, after Sean Bean meets his end that if Jamie Lannister didn't die immediately she would stop watching it and now that's her favourite character mm. even though he is awful uh, and I'd kind of forgotten all the awful things he does at the start of that show but like you could probably apply that to everyone like you know she said this is my wife again sorry saying that she didn't think she would feel sorry for Cersei ever but obviously with the uh, the walk of shame bit at the end of Season five, it's hard not to be affected by that, I guess. And we've all been there. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's interesting that TV can take those things and make them kind of smooth off the edges and, and kind of develop it a bit more and, and kind of spend a bit more time with people to realise that there's not really just black and white anymore. Well, yeah, it's like uh, Jean Renoir says in, I think, in the rules of the game where he says, you know, every man has his reasons. And I feel like that is the one of the kind of the tenets that you can draw for like really compelling villains um, and it's like kind of villains in maybe more complex forms of storytelling where you can say, okay, this person, I may not agree with what they want to do, but I can see why they want to do it. And you can understand that they are the hero in their own story, Mm. which is why Game of Thrones, you know, is compelling over that long period of time is that Jamie Lanniston can go from almost murdering a child at the end of the first episode Mm. which is about whilst whilst shagging his sister which is about as bad a hole as someone could kind of dig themselves out of Mm. by the end of you know very soon you know like the second and third season a certain point you feel really sorry for him or you know kind of theon greyjoy who is awful Mm. just the worst person you know he betrays the people who raised him he is just absolutely horrifying but then you see him broken down and tortured and become turned into reek and you may still not like him but at a certain point you kind of think yeah he has been punished a lot over the course of this show and he is now trying to do something right so i may not like him but i also maybe don't want awful things to keep happening to him mm, uh, yeah. and that that uh, you know that's that's a sign of giving complexity to awful characters mm, yeah and it's interesting this week with the release of The Force Awakens, which has happened, I was kind of uh, 
kind of working my way through the bonus features of that. And there's a really interesting bit with uh, Lawrence Kasdan when he was talking about the character of Kylo Ren and about how, how, how do you introduce a villain to the Star Wars universe when Darth Vader is your villain mm. in the previous three films, because he, he brings the point that like the, the the second you see Darth Vader, you know what's up. You know that's yeah. a guy who is walking into places. He's getting who appear to be normal people. He's choking them for information, but then over the course of two films, he is given depth to and then redeemed ultimately. But how do you top that when you've got like one of the all time or iconic villains? And I liked what they did with the new film. They got someone who is essentially uh, a millennial villain mm. <laughs> uh, and uh, just doesn't know what he's doing at all. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about The Force Awakens and, and Kylo Ren as a character. And obviously not everyone agrees with this. A lot of people don't like him as a villain. But I, I like the fact that he is not a te- an attempt to copy Darth Vader, although that is actually what the character is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like in, in terms of his personality he is the opposite Darth Vader was very controlled he was someone who was very efficient and he tried to do his his role as well as he could and until you know the second film where he starts to be given more complexity but certainly in the first one he is presented as this kind of ruthlessly efficient lapdog of the empire mm. whereas Kylo Ren is someone who is erratic and there is a sense that you don't know what he's going to do at a given moment and that's you know you and i've talked about this before that's why he is compelling yeah because he's genuinely uh, unnerving yeah i mean that is i think we'll, we'll get into this in a second but one of the 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 kind of things that i find most unsettling about villains in films um is unpredictability mm. um and the kind of two that spring to mind uh, will always be frank booth from blue velvet um, and Don Logan from Sexy Beast, Ooh, who yeah. uh, is genuinely unnerving to watch because irrespective of what's happening in the film, you don't think that anything's safe or any of the characters that you're engaging with that you have um, kind of uh, have an affinity with or you believe in or you kind of want to get through the scene might not make it because they're that unpredictable. And those two are the best examples that I can think of of that. Yeah, another good one that came to mind would be another David Lynch one would be the character of Bobby Peru, played by Willem Dafoe in Wild at Heart. God. Yeah. Who is an utterly horrifying character, right down to his rotten teeth. Mm. Uh, and he is, he's amazing. Like, it's a great performance by Willem Dafoe at his creepiest, you know, uh, three years removed from playing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he is, he, he's, it's an amazing performance by him. And that scene where he menaces Laura Dern in a hotel room, you know, kind of makes my skin crawl just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is a good example, again, of someone who is completely unpredictable from any given moment. You, you know that he's working with Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage, but at the same time, you think he could turn around and just like brutally murder them at any moment. There's nothing to stop him from doing it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Or Joe Pesci no. in Goodfellas, another good one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, and I mean, all of those people that we've talked about, perhaps with the exception of uh, of Don Logan, they're all called ordinary people, I guess. Hmm. Um, they're not kind of uh, guys who swish around in black capes, twiddling their moustaches. Although I think Bobby Pruitt has a very thin matinee idol moustache. Uh, yeah, it's it's very unnerving. Yeah, um, but there's they're not kind of what you'd think of as uh, fairy tale villains. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is kind of interesting. But this one of the things that we've kind of gave us the inspiration for this is the AFI, the American Film Institute, did 
um, kind of uh, they they're kind of in the the market for doing lists of things, and sometimes they're actually quite good, and they kind of start conversations. Um, in this instance, no different. Uh, they did a hundred greatest villains and a hundred greatest heroes. I think uh, maybe about was it for the centenary of cinema they did this? Yeah, so it's a few years old at this point. There have been more villains in that time, but I'm not sure if they would have supplanted the the ten that they brought as their best. Mm, and uh, bear in mind, these are only from American films. Um, so that's where the bias kind of leans towards. But uh, who have we got in the top 10 baddies? Okay, I'll start from number 10. The Queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Sure. Reagan McNeil from The Exorcist, which I think is a borderline case because she's she's mm. not the villain. Pazuzu is the villain. Yeah, Satan is the villain. Yeah, but mm. you know, Linda, Linda Blair does have to uh, embody that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phyllis Dietrichson from Double Indemnity, played mm. by Barbara Stanwyck. Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction, played by uh, Glenn Close. And, um, yeah, we'll come back to that one. Uh, Mr. Potter from the It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, who's that guy? He's the guy who owns the bank that wants to foreclose on the uh, the Bailey kind of business. Oh, he's who, li- literally the man. Yeah, and the guy who, when uh, the uncle leaves the money, kind of pockets it. Mm, okay. Causing George Bailey's uh, crisis of faith and, and near suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Wicked Witch of the West. Mm-hmm. Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. Norman Bates. And their number one was Hannibal Lecter. Mm. And it's interesting that we had this conversation earlier in the week that I recently learned that Hannibal Lecter, the character in Science of the Lambs, big Oscar winner for Fanny Hopkins for Best Actor, should we remember, he's only on screen for 22 minutes of that film, which is over two hours long. Um, I was very surprised to find that out because obviously he kind of dominates that film really in terms of atmosphere and mood, but he's hardly in it, which is a testament to how ludicrous the performance is. Hmm. I think that also is is an example of what a really great villain can do. And also there, it's interesting that he's the villain and that he was went up for lead because going by minutes, I'm pretty sure uh, Ted Devine is probably on screen more. Yeah. Uh, and he is the actual Villain in the sense that he's the person who is killing people uh, up until Hannibal Lecter starts wearing people's faces. Mm. But yeah, he he is a a villain who brings a lot of uh, character and a lot of presence to the film. And he, as from the moment that he appears on screen, he dominates it, even when all he's doing is standing. Because mm. he's standing just in the middle of a room for no real reason other than to creep out uh, Jodie Foster. And... You know that is that is all down to the physicality and to the performance and the role that the, he plays in that film as both adversary and confidant. Mm. Interesting that Hannibal Lecter is is a, such an iconic villain, um, and we've seen what like three versions of him. We've had uh, Brian Cox originally the first person on screen, then Hannibal Lecter played by. Anthony Hopkins, name escaped me there, uh, and now more recently by Mads Mikkelsen uh, in the TV show Hannibal. What connects all three performances, do you think, other than the fact that he's a cannibal? I think it is the the idea of him having. I mean, in the in the best versions of this, I mean, with the relationship that he has to the hero, to uh, Will Graham in Hannibal the TV series, and both Red Dragon and. Manhunter, the the fact that he is that he has that role where he is not only you know an adversary and someone who 
clearly on one level hates the person that they are opposite because they caught them or, or because they work for the organization that is keeping him wrapped trapped in a small cell and unable to go out and do what he wants to do which is you know kind of turn people into delicious meals mm -hmm. but he is also helping them he is providing advice and he is i think the, the thing that links all of them is there is a playfulness to that the the idea of a character who is incredibly intelligent was caught but even though he is in prison still seems to have a great deal of control and the interesting thing about the the hannibal the tv show and mads mickelson's performance is there there were very few moments when it didn't seem like he wasn't in control of the situation even when he was when he was free when he was on the run when he was in prison every time he seemed to be uh, in control of any given situation that he was in and i think that level of intellectual rigor on his part is what is kind of the unifying parts between all of them and also the thing that is missing from hannibal rising the prequel that no one talks about because it is drek oh god yeah there was another who played hannibal in that god knows he's been lost to time mm, yeah, yeah yeah that's fair i'm gonna take on bridge with some of those in the list i'm gonna come back to i mean the excess that i mean that's obviously that person is not a villain I, that 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 feels like a miscategorization, but I'm going to take on bridge with Fatal Attraction, playing uh, mm -hmm. closest character in Fatal Attraction because, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen the film, and I mean this this film is kind of like the worst kind of patriarchal like kind of example of anything ever because those of you who may not be familiar with the production history of, of Fatal Attraction um, and or what the film's about, but like basically Michael Douglas has an affair with someone. Um, and she becomes, she comes on strong, let's just say that. And she gets a bit obsessive. She kills his pet bunny. And in the original cut of the film, she attacked him and his family and then she got arrested. But in test screenings, uh, people hated her so much that they demanded she was killed. And they reshot the ending and Glenn Close was shot and killed by Michael Douglas in an act of self-defense. Now, the real villain of that film is Michael Douglas because mm. he's married and Glenn Close is not married. She's, like I say, she's come on a little strong, should we say. But, you know, we've all been there. But to call her, like, the sixth, what, the sixth worst person in the history of films, <laughs> given that, I don't know, just top of my head, Once Upon a Time in the West, Henry Fonda shoots a kid in the face. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I know he's Henry Fonda, and, you know, he was uh, kind of the archetypal hero in every film he was in ever. Not that one, though. He's horrible in that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, really? Her? She's the worst ever? I don't understand that at all. Yeah, I think that's an interesting example of a character that could be a really compelling villain if it was in a very different film. Mm. Because that is kind of a, a, a very much an airport thriller kind of thing. It's very seedy. It's very much part of that pseudo-erotic thriller vein that became really popular in the late 80s and early 90s. And it is it definitely feels like in a more considered film for example like there's a film that you and i are very kind of fond of in something like the king mm -hmm. the if you look at that film william hurt's character is in some sense the villain because he was a man who had an affair out of marriage and he has uh, his his illegitimate son comes to look for him and he rejects his son initially uh and then the son decides that he's going to uh take revenge for that and he does it in the most kind of uh, methodical and horrifying way imaginable uh, and in a way that is really kind of compelling and interesting 
but the film is so it kind of downplays those elements so much that it actually becomes more horrifying i feel something where uh the the glenn close character in fatal attraction because the film is so kind of heightened in that way it kind of sands down what could be the edges of an interesting character by making her kind of removed if the film was from her perspective Mm. i think it would actually she would be a really compelling character and it would make a little more sense but because it essentially takes michael douglas's side even though he is the one who has caused the situation kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth Mm, yeah can't believe frank booth's not in that top 10 i know he's he's such a great villain in comparison i guess I guess when you're looking at kind of really successful, really iconic films, uh, Blue Velvet is one that I think had a very difficult path to acceptance because mm. it, it caused a lot of outrage at the time and then a lot of mainstream critics hated it. I remember Mark Kermode has talked often about kind of hating it the first time he saw it and taking years to come around to it. Roger Ebert famously hated it and hated everything David Lynch did until The Straight Story you know, I think that's that's a film that took a very long time to be recognised as a masterpiece. I think it's still kind of crawling its way there. Mm, mm. It's interesting, uh, Norman Bates at number two there, because the thing that's most terrifying about Norman Bates is just how normal he appears. Mm. I mean, uh, socially awkward, yes, but uh, like I say, the opposite of um, the kind of moustache twisting villain that you'd expect. Uh, for, I mean, that film was made in nineteen. 19- 60, yep, possibly. And yeah, I mean, that was a pretty bold villain for, for back then. Yeah, and very much st- treading in more or less unprecedented territory. There had been a few films about serial killers, but they had, no film had kind of really delved into the psychology and the sexuality of it in quite a, a blunt way as that did, to the extent that the entire like last five minutes of the film is a psychologist explaining the film to people. Because people mm-hmm. just you know, weren't really prepared for the idea of a transvestite or the kind of the psychosexual um, uh, uh, underpinnings of, of what had happened. Um, mm. I think you're right that the thing, certainly in thrillers and mysteries, the thing that is eerie and terrifying is characters who just seem very normal. A good one, I think, from a film that's not great, but I think is, is certainly an interesting villain would be Risa fans in uh, Enduring Love. Mm-hmm. who is a guy who doesn't kind of seem particularly like he's he's a bit clingy and he's a bit kind of emotionally raw because he and Daniel Craig have witnessed this death at the same time and they were both involved with it uh but like his naked kind of human emotion on display is what makes him an unnerving character and an interesting villain because he's not presented as this kind of two-dimensional monster he is depicted as someone who has real kind of psychological underpinnings and i feel like in some genres that is what you want for a villain you want a villain where you can look at them and you can say i don't agree with what your aims are and i don't necessarily and what your logic is not my logic but it's a logic that i can understand Mm. whereas in something like a horror film you can have them have no psychology whatsoever they're just there to kill people like you know that, that that is why in the script for Halloween and also in the credits, Michael Myers is credited as the shape because mm-hmm. that's all he is. Yeah. And you see things like that in the Terminator, hmm. um, you boil it down to a word. That's what that character is. That's what he does. Um, there's a, a neat little speech in the middle that Michael Bean gives about the fact that it's just a relentless killing machine with no kind of a sense of reason or, or logic or anything. You know, he, he literally goes through the phone book, finds the people with that person's name and executes them and doesn't stop until they're all dead. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that is terrifying. Um, that is so terrifying and more terrifying than a villain who's got it all figured out that's going to give a monologue as to what they're going to do beforehand whilst they've got a laser kind of uh, moving up between their legs. Yeah, I definitely feel like if you're looking at kind of logical villains, one of the ones that kind of haunts my dreams is the villain in The Vanishing, the original Danish Mm. version, not the famously awful American version, where he is a guy who, when he lays out why he killed a girl, it's very mythological. It makes a lot of sense from his point of view. And you you come away thinking, yes, that made total sense why you would do that. It's horrifying what you did, but the reasons for it are airtight from your point mm. of view as to why you would want to do it and why you did it in the way that you did. And that that is the thing that makes him such a a truly terrifying figure. Mm, it's the banality of evil, isn't it? That's yeah. the uh, the phrase. The the kind of the villain from uh, Michael, the Austri- the Austrian oh, film God, that came yeah. out a few years ago. Yeah, that's uh, you know another terrifying. Yeah, the banality of evil. Ten Rings and Place as well. Um, another one. How do you think that that kind of cinema copes with dealing with like real evil, like as in true historical kind of terrors? Uh, I think it's very rare for you to see someone who a, a film that kind of really does it justice. I guess is is maybe the kind of a, a poor term for it, but the, the, certainly films about the Holocaust. You know, like Stanley Kubrick famously couldn't make the Aryan Papers because researching it depressed him, and he felt that no film could ever really com- convey the horrors of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like even the best films about the holocaust the films that handle it in the most kind of tasteful way or the most or who that really kind of commit to depicting it in a way that you know kind of feels like it gets some of it that you know there's you just can't you can't do it all there's you can't really show what that was like and so you have to sand down the edges and i feel like you can approximate it but you'll never be able to really kind of get to the meat of it in a way that could make people really understand it uh it's certainly mm. not you know if you compare it to something like like Shoah, the 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 nine hour documentary about the holocaust which does all of that because it's built from you know archive material and from first-hand accounts of survivors mm. i'd just like to point out that um this is just reminding me that the afi thinks that glenn close's character in fact attraction is worse than Rafe Fine's character in Schindler's List. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely definitely not on the same scale at all. No, no. They want probably they probably wanted to keep the list light. You know what I mean? Just stick to the one cannibal and the one serial killer. And yeah, Darth Vader. He he's um, interesting as well. Rafe Fine's is an example of a villain who does completely awful things and but at certain points in the film seems to give an inkling that he knows that what he's doing is wrong, mm-hmm. but then kind of shuts it down. Another good example of that from recent years would be Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained, mm-hmm. where he's someone who revels in the fact that he's a slave owner, but at the same time, th- there are glimpses in his performance where you get the sense that he's going along with this because this is what society does and not necessarily what... Uh, you know, is actually what he believes to, in his heart to be right. Uh, and then also you have, like, the Samuel L. Jackson character in that film who's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, and irritating as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very grating performance. Yeah, um, or Colonel Hans Lander as well in 
Inglorious Bastard, I think, is a, a good example of a villain that kind of fits at the centre of a lot of Venn diagrams because he is charismatic. He has a psychology that you understand. He's someone who uh, is genuinely fun to watch. Certainly mm-hmm. in his uh, his opening scene where he just draws out that massive big Sherlock Holmes pipe. Uh, it gets a huge laugh in the middle of what is a very, very tense scene. But like he is a vi- he is undoubtedly a villain who does really horrible things just because that's what his job is, but who also, you know, is like given lots of fun things to do and delivers a really funny performance. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. We're going to wrap things up now, Ed. Uh, but before we do, what about our personal favourite villains? Who have you got? Uh, I'm going to go with Noah Cross from Chinatown, who I mentioned last week very briefly, but he is someone who. Uh, I feel is partly it's the performance. I think that John Houston is amazing in that role. Uh, he is like he he brings kind of the gravitas of being a Hollywood legend to that performance, but also like when he kind of unveils the things that he has done, both uh, in his personal life and his business life, there is a shamelessness to it and a kind of a a sense of righteousness even on his part that sense of i did this thing therefore it's right that is genuinely chilling to behold and i think is a great example of of a character embodying not only kind of being an individual person uh, that is that is kind of really horrible in their own right but also representing the horribleness of an entire class essentially Mm, mm. Uh, i'm gonna pick uh the character of morel from uh, a room for Romeo Brass, oh. the uh, the Shea Meadow film. Great one. Um, and to call him a villain is is perhaps a little strong, but yes, a kind of a loner with kind of uh, nothing really going on, who turns incredibly dangerous and incredibly sinister very quickly. And when you kind of mix that with kind of two impressionable young boys, the results are as combustible as you'd expect. And uh, Paddy Considine, that really kind of break breakthrough performance. Obviously, Dead Man Shoes is the one. I mean, that's another great villain another look at what it is to be a villain but that that was the one that got me most attention but yeah uh room for romeo brass was the one that brought him to my attention and uh he's kind of fascinating in that it's kind of an endlessly watchable one for someone who does a scene where they go to kind of appear in in kind of nottinghamshire and does a kind of goofy dance and then next minute is pulling a hammer out and threatening to drive it through someone's skull is is kind of terrifying and shouldn't work in terms of shifts through the gears but it does um and it's most excellent seek that one out if you haven't already i think that's probably a good place to wrap things up if you've enjoyed this two-parter um you're going to enjoy the next few weeks because we've got something even bigger planned haven't we Ed? yes we enjoyed doing a two-part series so we're going to do a three-part series next and that three-part series will be sex drugs and rock and roll Hmm. Um, we've mooted this for a long time and the reason that we're doing it now um, is mainly because we now both have a copy of the All Saints movie Honest (laughs) and what better place to discuss rock and roll in film than to watch what could be the greatest film made by rock stars ever Um, so that was the impetus for us to get this on but I think there are three very good subjects that we could make excellent episodes about or four if we decide to do rock as one and roll as another (laughs) Yeah, one entirely about The Rock um, <laughs> and um, Michael Chiklis in The Fantastic Four. Um, <laughs> basically a whole episode on that. And the film The Rock. Um, is there any other rock-based films? 
Uh, we could talk the about core, f- I guess. Yeah, we could talk is... about Thraggle Rock, the TV show. The, the possibilities are endless. I mean, there's not a lot of geology-themed movies, are there? San I mean, Andreas. going to be even harder. Uh, San Andreas, the fault in our stars. Uh, <laughs> God, we're just getting into puns now. Roll would be difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, there's that film, is it Stranger Than Fiction, where Maggie Gyllenhaal is a baker. That's tenuous. Yeah, there's uh, the film Rubber, about a sentient tyre. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that whole beginning of... Indiana Jones, where he, he runs away from that boulder. Yeah, so you see, there's plenty. So it's going to be a four part series. No, we're going, mm. we're going to do a three part series. Yeah, we could Definitely. do sex, drugs, rock, roll, and then rock and roll. <laughs> and we talk about talk about the Guy Ritchie film Rock and Roller. And this got out of hand let's quickly. Not, let's but not let's, hobbit this. Let's keep yeah, it down exactly. to it. <laughs> let's, uh, let's not jackson it. What have we got for recommendations this week, Ed? Uh, I'm going to recommend. Uh, a couple of books I've been reading. They're books by the writer and uh, podcaster Glenn Weldon, who's most famous for being on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, maybe. Uh, he's written two books, one called Superman, the Unauthorized Biography, and one that has just come out called The Cape Crusade, which is about the history and the cultural kind of evolution of Batman, both of which mm. are very good. Very good. Uh, I am more of a Batman person, so the, the second book was kind of had a greater interest to me initially but they are both really great at both showing the evolution of the characters through the comics but also through tv and film and all the various iterations that have existed uh there's plenty of fun stories about just insane iterations of those characters such as in the the attempt to do a live action superman show which was actually about a super dog where the characters were all played by little people wearing dog heads the hmm. pilot of which exists online i believe it's called super pup and it is insane but those books are both incredibly funny very readable and full of you know great knowledge and wonderful insight into these kind of two characters of these hugely important characters in pop culture for essentially being certainly in superman's case the the character that invented the notion of the superhero and therefore you know, is responsible for what movie culture is now, you know, in, in many ways. And I would recommend both of those books. They are both fantastic. Mm. I was going to recommend something different today, but about an hour before we sat down to record this episode, uh, Sex, Lies and Videotape came on Film 4. And I watched the first hour and remembered uh, instantly just how much uh, I love that film. Um, and I'm going to watch it all tomorrow. But if you haven't seen it, please do check it out. It's Steven Soderbergh's uh, debut film uh, from 1989, which kind of what amazes me every time I see it is is it's still kind of relevant. It hasn't really dated. Perhaps some of the hairstyles, I guess, have dated, and and it would probably be like iPhone footage now, <laughs> not video tape, uh, I guess. But that film is still kind of pretty punchy and it reminds me of something that would probably be a serial on HBO. It reminds me very much of Girls. Mm. And I think it was it was that kind of film that started the Sundance boom, if anyone's kind of interested in that, the film that kind of started with that and ended with Pulp Fiction, I guess, and the films that went in between this kind of little indie boom where suddenly it was kind of hip to be in indies and, and you know, it wasn't the kind of kind of realm of, of frustrated artists kind of eking by a living, it suddenly became viable and things like the Brothers McMullen came out and, you know, uh, Eat Drink, uh, no, no, what is it? Sorry, Gas Food Lodging mm. and uh, all those kind of films. And, and that is 
the film responsible for all those being successful and it's kind of awesome but it's also a great film uh, and it kind of set James Spader off on that long road of playing people who were both sexually alluring and sexually repellent which he has managed to squeeze into every film including the Avengers <laughs> I'm glad you made the joke because I was about to say culminating of course in his role as Ultron yeah, yeah, which he makes a, he, yeah, he manages to make a robot sexually repellent, <laughs> which is, takes some doing. Yeah, especially in the same year that we also saw Ex Machina, so they were very much, the the two sides of the, is it okay to fuck a robot, uh, coin were represented. Mm, yeah, yeah. Anyway, from fucking robots to the end of the show. Thank you very much for listening. As always, uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher or Player FM. Uh, And if you've really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. You can find us at our website, which is srspodcast.com. You find us on Twitter at srs underscore podcast and on Facebook too. We'll be back next week with the first part of the Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll trilogy. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. (laughs) 